The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Abandon all hope, ye who listen to this podcast. Oh, no, wait, it's not a Jack episode, so we'll be okay. (laughs) Spoken well, Don, spoken well. (laughs) And tonight, we are going back down a rabbit hole that we avoided a few weeks ago. Tonight... We are going to talk about mysticism one more time, and we're going to get it right this time. Not that we got it wrong last time, but when we had on our previous guest, uh, Dave Towers, um, some people felt that his presentation of mysticism and the history of mysticism was missing a few details. In fact, one of our listeners, Lothar Tuppen, who was brought together with us by mutual friend of the show, Jack Ward, uh, reached out to us and began talking with us. And after an email exchange went from being sentences to paragraphs to pages to short books, we decided that we'd better to just take the conversation onto the show so that you could all hear a more detailed version of the history of mysticism and what it involves and another viewpoint. So to help us unravel all this tangled knot of the occult uh we've brought on lothar tuppen welcome to the show lothar thanks and uh just wanted to say that whether people like this or hate this it's all jack ward's fault as always <laughs> sir as always and of course since it wouldn't be fair to uh have this discussion without our friend dave towers we've brought him back too hello back. all right so uh now that we have uh both fires in the ring let's uh begin our little discussion so Dave, you mentioned before the show that you wanted to start off by talking a little bit more in detail about some of the bits of mysticism history that we might have missed last time. So why don't we start there? So Sure. Well, first of all, I want to explain something. In the previous episode, and then um, something that happened in the previous episode, and then second, I want to give some perspective to my academic approach, because I think those two things are both important. Mm -hmm. So first, when you asked me whether or not I had seen any proof of this, you know, I probably should have added a very important extra part, which was, but I wasn't looking for it. Because I think that's a really important thing, because really what I've always followed, my interest has always been the story of how mystical ideologies um, move from point to point, from beginning to now. But I didn't really care about whether or not they were real or not, if that makes sense. You were and interested so, more of the theory than the actual practice. That's correct. Because as I pointed out, and I, I kind of made a qualifier that, you know, really I kind of feel that way about religion in general, that I'm not a, I'm not a religious person by nature. Um, and so I, I kind of want to make that distinction, that, that it was – I should have said I wasn't looking for it. I think that's something important. Um, and so one of the other things that I have a tendency to do in my research is I tend to simplify things. And there's a primary reason I do that because I think – it's easier to understand when you strip things down to its basis level. Mm-hmm. When you look at the history of things, there's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of noise in everything you read, and there's a lot of commentary. And so what I try to do is try to strip down everything I'm reading and look for the commonalities. And I probably learned that my professor, or from my professor, Dr. Roy Amor, 
um, who I think mm-hmm. Don had as well at one point in time, didn't you, Don? Yeah. Um, and he was very big on that about comparative religious studies, about kind of looking at commonalities and themes and those kind of things. And I, like I said, I think history has a has a tendency over time to complicate things a little bit more. And so I tend to like to strip that all down, get down to the bare bones of things, and just have. I think it's easier to draw connections when you can strip things apart. And right. then I have the added bonus that I don't really care what I find. I don't really believe in any particular one strain of religion. So I tend to be able to very easily strip things down. I guess that's, so that's kind of my approach. Mm-hmm. But it's a very so, academic approach. And I, I can see where you got that from professor Amor. I remember him too. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, that's as, as a professional academic. Yeah. That's basically what I do with material as well. That's just standard academic thinking. Yeah. And so again, I'm very different in that sense. Lothar's uh, a very different, uh, both of us approach this from a very different perspective. Him and I have been talking a little bit. And so, um, I don't know, jump in as well if you want, Lothar, there. Yeah, I um, I guess um, my background, which I, I don't have degrees in these areas, I'm just sort of a, um, a lay uh, amateur who uh, tries to hold myself to the highest uh, standards possible because I don't have those, so I better be able to support my stuff or else... Why the hell would anyone listen to me? Um, a lot of the mentors that I've that I've uh, followed are more from the anthropological school than, let's say, um, the folkloristic school, which my best friend is a folklorist. And it's interesting because they find a lot of commonalities. They try and find what are the commonalities of things. And a lot of the current uh, comparative studies that are going on in anthropology, which we see with uh, people like Jack Hunter and even and religious studies like Jeffrey Kripal, they're trying to bring back comparative studies because it got a lot of bad press for political reasons in um, the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. which, uh, especially in social sciences and religious studies because of Indo-European studies, which is a whole other rabbit hole. But basically, it's white people and it's racist, so we can't do it. And that's why it's sort of out of fashion. And there's people trying to bring it back, but in a different way of doing comparative studies that are um, also approaching the specifics of, like, we're comparing this, but we're also noticing that along with the similarities, we also have these distinctions, and those distinctions are just as important to be aware of. So if I have a slight difference from Dave, it's that maybe I don't want to lose the specifics because of the generalities. And maybe I swing a little bit farther on that on that pendulum than other people would. Both, both very reasonable approaches and, uh, and valuable ones as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, think, so I think when we go back in history, you know, I, I talked about the fact that I had started in present and worked my way backwards, backwards, backwards. And I got about as far as I could get. And then I said, okay, I think this is my beginning point. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my beginning point was Jewish mysticism. So one of the important parts to think about, understand Jewish mysticism, and Jewish mysticism is very anchored in a couple of very specific biblical experiences that come out of the, out of the, out of the Torah, um, but primarily out of the old, you know, what we call the Old Testament and the Christian side of things and that. And so really when you're looking at, at a concept of how um, Jewish mysticism is framed, uh, you can understand is the book of Ezekiel, is really the beginning point of all of it. But mm-hmm. a more present way that people would understand it would be the concept of Jacob's Ladder. And so it's the idea of a human person somehow transcending, transcending the, um, the ladder to get to God, if that makes you know, that mm-hmm. comparison to understand. And so um, where Kabbalah, what becomes known as Kabbalah later on, but beginning wasn't known as Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism starts from a place of, of really trying to apprehend 
what some of the early prophets had experienced, some of the later prophets had experienced. And so Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is written sometime around 100 to 150 BC. That's a kind of the age, age talking here. Mm-hmm. And what came out of that, which, which kind of pervaded all the way through, was an idea that what Ezekiel was talking about when, and what, what happens in very, very easy terms is Ezekiel sees God. He sees a vision of God. He sees God's chariot. He sees um, kind of the angels. He sees a whole, describes everything he's seen in his religious vision, which is mm-hmm. very different than a lot of the other Jewish books because they're not so specific. But Ezekiel is a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. And what comes out of that is all the rabbis saying, we want that too. How do we access this? And so what starts coming out is a rabbinical term that they call, and I apologize to anybody who speaks Hebrew who doesn't, who doesn't understand this, who I don't uh, pronounce this properly, but it's something called the Merkava, or the Merkava, depending on how you pronounce it. And so it's, it's the vision, right? And so up with this thing called the Maseb Merkava, which is all about the mechanics of the vision. And what that really tells you is what they're trying to create is a system to create a to create religious experiences, essentially. Okay. So they start to look into the details of how did Ezekiel get this vision? How can we get this vision? How can we go? So that continues on. And when you get to 70 AD, what happens is the Romans kick the Jews out of Israel and out of Jerusalem entirely. Mm-hmm. And so what starts to happen is now, you know, in, for every rabbi who's existed at that time, their connection to God is in the temple and it's in Israel. And now we're moved from both places. There becomes a lot of rabbinical work to try and find ways to connect to God that don't involve the, the land of Israel and the temple. And so that's where a lot of this stuff starts to develop. And a lot of the mystic endeavors start to develop is really very devout rabbis trying to find ways to connect to God. Hmm. And so they start to create manuals on how to do this. And there's several different books that are published in the area of 1 AD to 3 AD that are almost, um, they're teaching books, I guess, if you will, that tell you exactly, tell rabbis, and specifically rabbis. And there's actually qualifiers that talk about, like, you have to be a certain person. You can't, like, they're very specific about who's allowed to see God, essentially. Um, these long books that explain um from beginning to end, the pathway you're going to take, the names of the people you're going to encounter, the devils, how many gates there are, how many guards are at the gate, what their names are, how you're going to do it. It's a very regimented system that they create. It's essentially a system of magic, if you really look at it. Um, and that's what gets created out of this. And so what, that's the Jewish perspective, and there's several different versions of it. But that eventually develops over the centuries to become known, what we know as the Kabbalah. Which, what's interesting is, again, it comes from a very one deity centric system where God is a giant figurehead, um, because it's obviously Judaism, and so that's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. So enter into the same picture what's happening in the ancient times at this period of time. So you have a lot of combining of faiths that happen. And so Mm -hmm. if you go back to Egypt and the Greeks taking over Egypt and the Ptolemy era, um, and what you start seeing, and you know, after that, the Romans and all the different groups. And what you start seeing is the connections of different um, of different philosophies combining together because it works for people. I mean, there's a great book by Dan Brown, or not Dan Brown, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. It's called The Cult of the Saints, and it's all about 
what happened to all the Roman gods when um, when Rome became Catholic. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the argument is they just stayed. They just called them saints. They didn't change right. them at all. They just oh, right. created them into saints, right? And so, you know, Christianity, in fact, is a, with all the saints, is actually quite a polytheistic religion. Um, yes, however, it is. it's, it's it, it, probably the most polytheistic religion on the planet. Um, however, um, it's masked, right? And so, what starts happening is you see this mix. And so, in the same period of time, you have. Um, hermeticism getting created. And so hermeticism is really the combination of the old Thoth magic uh, magic from Egypt and the Greek Hermes mixed together, right? And so those two things combine and that creates another group of myths, another mystical group of thought, again, which is also very instructional. And so there's, um, they, they, at varying times, Hermes Trismegistus is the name of the character they create. And in some ways, Hermes Trismegistus is a very similar character to the guy I talked about last episode um, with Christian Rosencruz. He's mm-hmm. a mystical character, a fit of um, a. Um, and a Dave, if you, can, if you can explain his uh, surname for people if they don't know what Trismegistus means. Yeah, so Trismegistus means thrice greatest. Okay. Huh. And, and there's a lot of reasons as to why thrice greatest come where thrice greatest comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen different versions that really Trismegistus is just a version of what they would call Thoth because I think the way they referred to Thoth was Thoth the Great, the Great, the Great, the Great. Uh, and okay. so there's the thought that that's what it is. There's been lots of debate as to what, uh, I don't know if you've got a different version of where that name came from there, Lothar. I think there's a lot of places, definitely what you just said. I think uh, something else that shouldn't be um, underestimated, this is more, more in my actual realm of specialty, which is Indo-European studies leading into Norse studies, which is that in Indo-European cultures, which the Greek was one of, as well as the Roman, threes are really important. Threes are always really important. So that's going to be something where they they get something else of going, hey, Thoth said, he's great, he's great, he's great. That makes sense to us because threes are really cool. Yeah. And so we're not even going to question. We're just going to go, of course, that makes perfect sense. Let's just keep moving on. Yeah, right. Well, threes are actually, sorry to interrupt for a second, but three is an actual psychological number in the human brain. It seems to resonate for some reason, period. There's lots of cultures. It's just, it's interesting where like, there's so many threes in Indo-European studies. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yep, sorry to interrupt about that too. Okay, Dave, back to you. Yeah, no problem. So, so Hermeticism kind of, again, starts roughly around 200 to 300 AD is your time period where it becomes really a, a, a movement. And so it's really a contemporary of early Christianity and all the other movements that are happening at that time. And so Hermeticism, once again, also comes from a place where there's a single God, because that's kind of where the world is going at this point in time. The world is somewhat less, less, um, less mystical or less uh, pantheistic. Is that the word I'm looking for? Um, some ways. Um, sure. At the same at the same time, what also is important is. It's very difficult to have a mystical quest if you're looking for 700 different gods. And so you got to focus True. a little bit when you're talking about mysticism. And so that tends to be what happens with, the, with hermeticism. Um, it's mm. very in line with a lot of things. The reason that's important is because, because it's a very central thing. Hermeticism also doesn't define what, what, who the god is. It's, it's just this universal god. It's God, right. but it doesn't say it's the Jewish god or the Indian god. It doesn't say who it is. 
because of that, Hermeticism has been able to be used over the centuries to be owned by numbers of different people. And you can see actually um, her, Hermeticism, and even Kabbalah does the same thing, where it's spelt differently, especially Kabbalah, where there's Kabbalah with a K, which is Jewish, Kabbalah with a C, which is Christian, Kabbalah with a Q, which kind of became big in the, in the 1800s, which <laughs> kind of stripped the Jewish and the Christianity out of it and was kind of a big thing from the 1800s on. So there's lots of different things. And so the adapting is also another thing that's important. When I was going, when I did my research, I, I, as much as it's painful, I read every single section of the Corpus Hermeticum. And so the Corpus Hermeticum is the books that are ascribed to um, Hermeticism. And so there's a series of books written, and they're written as a series of lectures in a sense and teaching things, very much in the Greek style of of kind of philosophers teaching their students in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, and what's interesting is there was a lot of um, debate to how much these had been edited over the years. And, um, and Lothar had mentioned about the Nag Hammadi. And so uh, something you had met in an email recently. And so right. something that happened was we had these books, but all the books were filtered through all the Catholic churches and all the, all the editors and all the writers in 1945 these two brothers were goofing around the cave and found all these documents in all these old papyrus scrolls mm-hmm. and uh, in Nag Hammadi. And what they did with them wasn't to give them to somebody. They actually tried to make money off of them and sell mm. them around. And they started distributing them all over the place and slowly selling them out to different places. And eventually these things got all collected and it took a while. Um, I, I think several, uh, at least a decade before scholars started to realize what these guys had. Um, and these were original documents in Coptic, I believe. Yeah. Um, and Dave, I can't remember if you just mentioned that or not, but um, in case uh, people missed it, this was like 1946, 47. So it was very recent that this was found. Yeah. So what it did is it gave, it kind of cleaned up a lot of the things we know about what was in the Corpus Hermeticum. Mm-hmm. And it, it cleaned up what was edited, which is very important too, because it kind of gave us much more of a natural perspective of what they were studying as opposed to filter through the Catholic Church. It also gave uh, Jewish people a lot more linguistic information of ancient uh, of Hebrew, so they could reconstruct their language more accurately, um, yeah. apocryphal from, from their stuff. And also, it's the only way that we know about what the Gnostics actually thought from their own words, because everything we had beforehand was written from the Orthodox Church demonizing them. So we got everything from the, uh, the, the winners of that war until the 40s when we got the library at Nag Hammadi. Yeah. Really, it's so hmm. it's it's a it's really an important document, and it's probably I would say probably the most in, for the mystic world probably the most important discovery ever. Really, yeah. um, so the Corpus Hermeticum is broken into many many books, I, um, and I've tried to read as many as I could, but a lot of it follows into the Judeo Christian ideology, um, and it. And it talks about the fact that God is the cosmos. He's the unmovable mover. A lot of the stuff we learn about in, in religious philosophy class and those kind of things, there's a lot, everything kind of falls in line with the, with the steadfast Judeo-Christian concept of what God is. Where it varies very specifically is when it gets into um, talk about acquiring God's knowledge. Because the Corpus Hermeticum is very clear and it. It says God has left his knowledge to find him. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but um, mm-hmm. and that we have to be willing to 
um, sacrifice ourselves, our physical form in order to get them. Because, and then it goes on talking about the fact that you can't separate the spiritual from the physical, that if you're going to find, try and find the spiritual side of things that you have to make that dedication to find the spiritual side of things. Um, you know, there's a comment, I, I've got a comment, I, I, my, my own notes I wrote down is if humans can't, if humans can't live in reason and mind and they make the difference of what mind is reason is what we live in now. Mind is what is, what is the God world in a sense. And so it's, it's very much a mystical textbook that talks about what you need to do and what is about how to go about finding God and that mm-hmm. God is accessible. And it's essentially the closest you're going to get to a mystic, a mystic pathway. Um, and so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, going to, going to, going to mention, see what you guys think. Because there seems to be something strange that happens in like the earliest days. It's, it sort of starts um, a little before Judaism with uh, Abraham, mm-hmm. which is kind of Abraham is sort of the progenitor of the, the monotheistic religions from, from that area like Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam later on. But it's the idea that prior to that, um, the notion of the divine, of, of the god or the gods... It's, it seems to be an inherent thing. Like, if, if you go back uh, a century or three earlier, you get where the Egyptians believed that the king, the pharaoh, was actually partly divine. Um, yet you had uh, a lot of the, uh, the, the earlier societies that existed then, like, uh, going back to the tale of Gilgamesh, which is, like, our first known story. Mm-hmm. Gilgamesh is the son of the gods. When you get to like uh, the ancient Greeks, they had the demigods, which were the offspring of a human and a god. And it seems like when you get to the uh, the when Judaism kind of solidifies, you've got this notion that God and humanity are now somehow separate things. Like you, you still had kind of the 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 greediness that like the rabbis would keep the knowledge of the divine mostly for themselves. And they were kind of a caste apart from the rest. But they didn't claim to actually be part of God any more than anyone else. Like, they didn't claim to be his children or or from his lineage or anything. And I'm wondering, um, mysticism in a weird way seems kind of an end run around that. That instead of the divine infiltrating humanity it's a way for humanity to partake of the divine i think i think there's um there's a a few things that i think will illustrate that point in in interesting ways uh don and that you're you're right and i think one thing that we need to also take a look at is the difference between what uh certain religious scholars call traditional religion versus revealed uh, religion Mm. And the Abrahamic religions, and I love the fact that you brought that up, is because I think that is a far more accurate word to use than Judeo-Christian. There's a lot of Jews that hate the word Judeo-Christian because the Torah is sometimes seen through a Christian filter and said, oh, it's just the Old Testament. It's just the same thing as the Old Testament. And they go, no, it's very different. You're taking all of our culture out of it and looking just at the text, and they get very upset. So Abrahamic can make a lot more sense because it is about Abraham as being the source of those three major religions of Islam, uh, Judaism, and Christianity. Um, there's a lot of the majority of the world religions are actually that are you know maybe not known as much 
are traditional religions. This means that it erupts from the people. There's a consensus that goes on. It moves back and forth. There's regional variations. Maybe over just a very few small miles of that village just down the road is going to worship completely differently than the way we do here. Uh, some cultures have an organized priest class like the Celts did. The Norse did not. They had no organized priest class. So there's all sorts of things that's just very organic, and it shifts and it moves to meet the needs of the people and the culture. And people who could address uh, mysticism within that, which I'll help define that in a second, we can have that discussion, is a little bit different than the revealed traditions, which is someone saying, I've been given this amazing vision or this amazing revelation, and now I'm going to give it to you. And if you do what I tell you, we can all have that same experience. Mm. That's a very different way of having religion than uh, the Dahomey in West Africa or, you know, the, in the Amazon tribes or whatever, you know, yeah. the Norse, even the Greeks, when you're talking about those older states to where they could have a mystical experience but it would be far more individualistic because they just wanted to get closer to maybe who their divine God was. So someone in, you know, Athens might want to have a, a what we would now call a mystical experience with Athena. They would have a very different way of doing it than they would in, um, you know, a place that was dedicated to Apollo. Mm. And, you know, to, to touch on when we're using the word mysticism for people out there, not to be too taxonomical, because I think there's a lot of overlap, but usually mysticism means someone who wants to find a direct connection, have direct experience with divinity without a mediator. That slightly different from magic or sorcery or divination, which is maybe more of like the flip side of magic. Um, we can get into that as we move on forward, but just for people to realize that these are not complete synonyms in the way they are used in pop culture. Because when we read, let's say, a Doctor Strange book, magic, mysticism, sorcery, whatever, they're all used interchangeably of whatever the author thinks is going to make the most impressive line in that particular panel or line in a movie or whatever. They actually are slightly different things, if not sometimes majorly different things. Absolutely. And, and where you get into the magic side of things in Hermeticism is there was this as above, as below kind of idea. And, and Kabbalah had it as well, because there's actually like Kabbalah magic books that are out there that say, if you do these things, you can cast a spell on this person and give a magic charm to them. And there's a lot of these kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so what, where, where the idea comes from, and especially in Kabbalah, because the Kabbalah creates a world of, of lights of emanation. So there's 10 different spheres of God's emanations on the, on the world, and we're on the bottom sphere. And so what the idea and what it creates is a system that if you can somehow ascend into the higher levels somehow, that you can somehow manipulate the, the heavens, if you will, or the other spheres that are above you, that then you could then take those, um, take those ideas and bring them back or take the thing you created there and make it happen on earth. And it's, I mean, it's a much more complex version than, say, a concept of prayer. You know, dear, please make me win this baseball game. People, you know, uh, it's a totally different concept than that. But the theory is the same, that somehow people pray and they think that if they pray that things are going to happen to them. Whereas in, in, the, in the magic world, and especially as it's laid out in both some, in some of the books of the Kabbalah and in the Corpus Hermeticum, it actually says very clearly, you can create things. Now, it very much says you can create things only that are good. And so it has some definitions. But there's also, in some of them, there's some, comma, some, um, some cautionary tales in there that says if you don't know which one's good, and that's why um, 
something like the in the Kabbalah books, they were so specific about these are angels and these are demons and they named them all. Because if you don't know where you're going in this after in in the other realms, you might end up on the demon side of things and create all sorts of problems for yourself that you don't know what you're doing, um, including losing yourself. And that was a big problem in in a lot of the mystic ideas is getting lost and not knowing how to get back. And there was a, one of the books, um, I think it's a Sephiroth at Zero, but I'm, one of them, they talk about, it's yes, it's great that you can go see God, but if you don't get back, there's no point. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, before we get into the Zohar, because I assume that's going to be coming up at some point, mm -hmm. Dave, um, there's another thing that's interesting in that some of these cultures that had started to develop philosophical thoughts, some more than others, they have things that are very similar, which is usually like four types of learning or six types of learning or whatever it is, but basically going through and we have the, the basic platonic ideas of learning that ends with noesis, you know, direct understanding and all that stuff. And you go through logic and all those various things. Um, in, in even like the Norse studies, which didn't get very advanced because they never got a structure before Christianity got imposed that they were allowed to develop this. They have their own thing that's very similar of like, I see something. Now I have faith in something. Now I can actually analyze it. Now I really understand it. And you're trying to go through those four different levels to be able to get the wisdom to understand what you're trying to even do. And I know that the, uh, the Zohar and the... Um, the Kabbalah has four of those as well. Is this a good time to bring that up, Dave, or do you want to... Yeah, if you're, yeah go ahead. You're doing good. You, uh, you okay. go on. I'll jump in for you on your side then. There's at least uh, one, and I, again, I'm, I don't speak Hebrew, so I might be mispronouncing also. Uh, there's Peshat, which is a direct interpretation of something. There is Remez, which is uh, when maybe you use illusion or um, you understand something by able to use a poetic way of uh, describing it to someone. There's derash, which is uh, basically a series of questions. Like maybe we would have a, a better, you know, similar to um, a inquisitorial, a inquisitorial study or a analytical study of something. And then there is sod, which is um, that deep secret and mystery that might also be uh, synonymous to some degree with Greek mysterium or uh, Norse runa or um, various other concepts of this mystery that is always never going to be answered, but the seeking is how we get more knowledge. And just to bring in what the Zohar does and what, how the Zohar changes things. So the Zohar is written, I've got, I got a date here, but sometime in the 1200s, 1275 I've written down, otherwise known as the Book of Radiance or the Book of Splendor. And what the Zohar does for mysticism, but actually more for theology as a whole, is it kind of breaks apart the concept, the, the at that time, the modern concepts of what God was in the Western theological world. Um, it, it, in some ways, challenges the idea that God is ineffable, infallible, and immovable. It challenges all those factors because what it does is it puts a lot of power in humans. Um, and, it, and it really creates, uh, it, it dissects the universe and it dissects God into this very tangible view that prior to the writing of the book was only a place that religious scholars and rabbis and priests and things could access. And so it takes, to put it in, in the way Lothar said it, it really takes the apprehension of God out of the hands of any mediators at all and puts mm -hmm. it solely in the person's hands. It's a personal relationship, period, and it gives you a very clear and um, easy not easy is not the word I'm looking for, but a very clear and understandable pathway. Um, now, at the same time, in 1275, not a lot of people could read still, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, you've still got that. <laughs> there, so obviously it's for specific people, 
but it's a very it's a very set thing that comes along and it it very much shatters the the current standing between that the priests had the only access to God. And it's still a fairly, it's still a very, um, what uh, certain scholars would call elite magic or learned magic versus popular magic or folk magic, because it's only going to be those people who can read or read multiple languages. Um, Another thing we should probably mention is the uh, magical Greek papyri, which is that mixture of Greek and Egyptian basically grimoires of how to do magic that was from that mixing of those cultures. And that is an incredibly powerful um, influence on a lot of different practices, even up to today. There's modern, uh, there's modern groups that will be looking directly to the, what they call the PGM, the papyri Greek magi, however, basically you say the Greek magical papyri in Greek, um, that they use that as their main text that they work from still. Yeah, and I think that's a modern attempt to try to go back to that historical. And maybe it's the same reason why I went back to it in the history is because there is a sense that the older, further you get back, the more pure the ideology is. Because you know that it's not tainted by somebody or something or somebody's agenda. Which may not be entirely true, but that is definitely the perception. Correct. And that's, again, that's my own bias in some cases. Um, But because I think you know, there's a lot of worry about what the Catholic Church did. And there's definitely, when you look at Hermeticism and the translation, and even not so much Kabbalah, because it was a bit harder for them to mess with, um, because there's lots of records that carried that on. Um, But especially for Hermeticism, there were people who edited lots of things out of it and just gave it, and edited all the magic out of it, really, and edited all the alchemy out of it and just gave and said, hey, look, this is a Christian document. And then some other priest got it and said, no, it's not. You read this wrong. Um, and we can thank the, the Islam scholars in some ways for that as well, because they were doing their own translations. And so, of course, they were the ones who started the universities and all the things that were going on in Europe in the early, early days. Mm-hmm. And so their ideologies came forward and they had their own versions. There's a version called the Picatrix and there's lots of different things that they had brought forward. And so the, the Islamic scholars protected and for some reason never edited out the magic stuff not like the catholics did Hmm. yep yeah and if for people i I know a few people that actually have read the gayat al-hakim which is the picatrix in its original arabic yeah and compare it to the picatrix and they're not exactly the same right (laughs) yeah how are they different from each other Uh, i Hmm. would have to ask one of them for specifics, but basically the Gayat al-Hakim is far more um, truly uh, Arabic and Islamic, and the Picatrix is a lot more Western. Yes. Okay. okay. Huh. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Um, and you're right, and that, that's the best way to put it. Yeah, the, the Picatrix is the, is the English translation of the original. Mm-hmm. Or of that version of it. Yeah. And again, like, like, we got talking about that a little bit in the sense that... Um, where the Jew or the Islamic scholars had taken the books from the different libraries and brought them to Damascus and places like that to kind of dissect what was in them and learn from them, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that kind of brings us forward now into we've got it, we got ourselves brought forward, we got into the Catholic thing. So we've seen these two different, you know, major influences on on the mystic thought and the idea that individuals can access God. Um, that's obviously a huge threat to the Catholic Church, which dominates the Western world at that time, mm-hmm. and Europe particularly. 
Um, and so you start having scholars that start putting um, these things all down. And so I think the first is really a gripa, if I'm mm-hmm. following that. So a gripa puts it all down. It's hard to know where a gripa comes from because I, I've kind of had a love-hate relationship with a gripa over the years. Um, <laughs> I, I really have because I, I yep. was not sure some of the things he did. He definitely injected his own ideas into things um, over time. And later in his life, he actually um, he actually apologized for everything. Oddly enough, um, he he said, "I didn't." I, I think he went along and said, "I didn't believe any of the stuff I wrote." Um, okay. And, and it's a question as to whether or not he actually meant that, or was he saying it because he didn't want to get killed by the church? Mm, good and point. it's hard to. It's really hard to tell. Um, I have I, I have my note. It's funny. I have I have a a note on Agrippa after reading all his stuff and I have alchemist, Kabbalist physician. And then I wrote here in my note, he was also a charlatan and a self aggrandizing liar. Um, that's, that's the yes. note I put down on him. And I don't think that's inaccurate in some ways. Um, uh, because it's and, and we're talking about, we're talking about Heinrich Cornelius, not, yes. uh, the many, uh, there, there's a ton of Agrippas in history. If someone does a search for that, they're like, which one are they talking about? Yes. Hi, yeah, Agrippa von Nettesheim. We are Heinrich Can I, yes. Cornelius Agrippa. Yes, that's the guy. Okay, uh, or, what year would he live? What, uh, what was he around? Uh, around uh, mid to late 1400s? Yeah, 1486 to 1535. Oh, there we go. Okay. I've got all my bios here. I've been, I've, I told you I did this for a long time. Um, <laughs> so he, he wrote these books. He wrote, the, he wrote four books on the occult philosophy. And they were very, um, they were very important. But he also was the guy who invented, if I remember correctly, palmistry, and oh, okay. um, a lot of those things he came up with. Now, there's not a lot of basis in history for where some of these things he came up with from. And I think the problem a lot of people have with Agrippa is where did he get all this stuff from? Because really, no one else had it. So where did he get it from? And I'm not, and, and that's the one debate. But what what can't be can't be denied is he's the one who brought all of this stuff forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And let, let's uh, let's talk about that point when we get to the postmodern world of the 20th century, because I think that comes in to play very interestingly in the psychology of practitioners. Yes, of where, where things came from and where they didn't come from. Correct. Um, so I think you know after that we're probably getting into. Um, into Kelly and um, and D, right? Yeah, because uh, and that's this is really important because um, we are still living in a historical momentum that was started by D and the Elizabethan court. Absolutely. Okay, um, who's D? Do you want to explain John D? Uh, yeah, I'll briefly, and then uh, uh, I am I am not an expert, so please feel free to correct me. I will not also uh, pimp a book that came out a year ago by Jason Louve called John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. The reason why I mentioned this book, it's not the only book on John D. It's the only book I know of that addresses the fact that he was a magician and an alchemist, as well as a secret agent and a political maneuverer and um, basically... Uh, a consultant to Queen Elizabeth. Hmm. He lived in the in the 1500s. He was um, from a family that was started off being well off, but his dad mismanaged some stuff and got into trouble, and basically he was poor. Uh, he was a lifelong alchemist and believer in these things. He was a earnest believer, 
because it basically kept getting him into trouble. He was imprisoned. He was almost killed a number of times because during the Elizabethan reign, you know, things kept going back from the Protestant to the Catholic. And there'd be times where all of his weird magical thinking is suddenly heretical again. And oh, wait, no, we're Protestant again. He's okay. Um, <laughs> it, it would kind of swing back and forth. But he was the first one to come up with the term British Empire. He came up with the idea of we're on an island. Why don't we make an amazing navy and take over the world with a navy? Um, he was an astronomer to where part of his belief in magic or people's belief in his magic, I should say, made it think there's this, this apocryphal story that when the Spanish Armada was in this decisive battle, could have won the war against England, a storm sank the entire Armada. They, people will attribute that his magic magicked the storm. What was probably true, though, is that his understanding of meteorology said there's this is probably a good time they're going to have a really hard time out at sea now this is the important part also is that it's only in a modern sense and let's say the since the really split of the age of reason but really in the 19th and 20th centuries to where we define magic as uh supernatural things things that don't have a causal effect in almost every culture, even certain cultures in the 20th century in South America, magic is far more of a lot of different things that are just learned. So uh, there are grimoires in the north of Europe to where there are magic charms to cause someone to get sick by putting uh, rabbit droppings in their food. That's just food poisoning. You just made someone eat, eat poop. Of course they're going to get sick. But to a mindset, someone who knew how to do that and could think of that was considered a magician. There are people that were um, hired to fight amongst um, plantation owners that were coffee plantations in Mexico that were trying to fight amongst each other. They hired a bunch of magicians, and part of their skill set was assassins and poisoning. That was still considered part of magic. So when we're talking about magic at that time period, they didn't make a distinction the way we do now as to what that is. It's basically anybody who knows a lot. And this is where we get terms, especially in England, where the idea of a wizard, which literally means the wise person or the cunning man is another common one. Worldwide, a lot of the specific linguistic terms for for magicians are just like the person who knows a lot, the person who's wise, you know, things like that. So uh, John Dee was one of those. And he was very instrumental in putting in the idea that we need to take over the world. We need to create our empire. And this is where it gets funny from a religious point of view as they were fighting against Spain because Spain was Catholic. They were Anglican. And they were fighting for people's souls as much as they were fighting for land, territory, and riches and all the other stuff that humans always fight over. Is there anything you want to jump in there with, Dave, before I keep rambling on? No, go ahead. I think you're doing good. And I think sometimes just the thought I was thinking of is that I think a lot of times what John Dee did is ascribed to Francis Bacon because he's more popular figure yes. in history. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so people get them mixed up and they go, well, Francis Bacon mm-hmm. was a mystic. He was this. He wasn't really. I mean, not, not really. Um, not like John Dee was. But I think everything, they lived in the same period of time. Um, mm-hmm. Francis Bacon lived a little longer. But a lot of, like I said, a lot of the stuff that John Dee did and as history kind of unravels it, I think it erroneously got given to Francis Bacon. And maybe Francis Bacon liked that because Francis Bacon liked to have every title that ever existed in his name. Um, <laughs> yep. he, he, did, yep. he really did. And so I don't think it bothered him that he was he was ascribed these kind of things. Um, but, but I think people get confused sometimes when that. So just that. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, one last thing before we get into some of the more salacious stuff about D, which is kind of interesting, is... 
this all set the stage for what happened just a number of decades later with the Thirty Years' War, which again was a big fight from Protestants and Catholics for land, for money and everything. But one of the ways they justified this themselves about all this was that they were doing it for the souls of the people. So are the Protestants going to get the souls and have people converted and they'll go to heaven? Because, you know, if they're Catholic, that's just they're lied to and they're going to end up in hell and vice versa from the other point of view. So I'm sure there were people that were like, yeah, we're just really doing it for money or whatever. But as I think we all know, when we talk about story, no one believes they're the villain of their own story. They think they're the hero. And any justification to where they go, yeah, I'm going to go out and do those horrible things because I'm doing it for this good reason might help justification for that. And the 30 years war was in a large degree based upon the fight for people's souls between Protestantism and Catholic and Catholicism. And to a large degree, Americanism afterwards in our empire is still kind of that momentum still going on just in a secular sense. So we're kind of living under the shadow of John D. still. Yeah. And where John D.'s story changes is when he meets Edward Kelly. Because Edward Kelly is, I mean, if you, if you read some of the legends, him, he's every bit Rasputin and any number of different other kind of people, mysterious figures that exist out there. But in a sense, John D. had been known to try, had been trying unsuccessfully to acquire, speaking to angels. John believed very much, D. very much believed in angels. He was a huge proponent of angels being the secret towards um, being enlightened, you know, further or enlightening towards God and those kind of things. He very, very much believed in angels magic, but he wasn't successful on his own to accomplish those things. And then you enter John D or sorry, um, Edward Kelly, who shows up and says, not only can I get you angels, I can give you everything you ever wanted to know. I know the philosopher's stone. I know alchemy. I know everything that exists. Let me teach you. And technically what, what Kelly could provide that D didn't feel like he could do, even though there's some interesting things about his uh, journals now uh, in regards to this, is that he was trying to find someone who could specifically scry. That was the technique that he wanted. Absolutely. Someone who could look into a shoe stone, a you know piece of glass or some sort of dark reflective material, and there's whole legends about the obsidian stone that John D. got. Um, and he didn't feel like he could do it. There's now uh, people who've read his diaries who go like, it seems like he actually could, but he didn't really believe in his own abilities enough. So he used young children for a while, because that was one of the beliefs at the time, was that virgins uh, were more pure so they could see divine things. But then Kelly comes along, and Kelly says that he's an amazing scryer, and he's obviously a con man, but the other thing that's interesting is that D really kind of realized that he was a con man, but he also had absolute belief in his abilities as a scryer, so he put up with this guy's personality to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if, if I can, you guys can, can kind of correct me here. Uh, one thing about uh, John D and sort of what comes before him, what comes after, uh, to maybe put it in terms that... Uh, folks might might be able to wrap their head around when you go back historically um you had this idea of say the philosopher or the mystic or even like the priest or the scientist or the the learned individual was all kind of one idea and i think it kind of comes from the fact that you had a limited number of people who had say curiosity that they would actually wonder well why do the stars come out and a little bit of time to, to 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 contemplate things, either because of their standing or their lifestyle or the the caste they were born into, 
because in in early historical people times people weren't like i don't really give a shit about the the gods i'll appease them but i got like crops to take in when you get to when when you yeah yeah you see this this changing of the divine being something inherent to specific individuals to being the potential of all individuals there's still kind of i'm going to use the term altruistic attitude it's not quite right but it's that idea of learning for the sake of learning that i'm going to contemplate the divine because that's kind of uh um i'll say righteous it's not exactly the right term but it's there it's something that may benefit all of us if we understand the the deeper workings of the universe john d's kind of the guy that popularizes it because he sort of takes the mystic stuff down to the level of and you the average person can get something from it yeah i i would agree but i would say that just as important too is he's the first guy that isn't just writing about it yeah yeah he's the first guy that actually says okay i got all this stuff i'm gonna do something with this i'm not just translating i'm just reading it i am doing this and he came up with something brand new that we'll get into with Kelly. And this is a thing where um, your average person is not going to do Enochian magic. Um, it's really complex to even understand, let alone to actually try and enact. Um, and that's what he comes up with with Kelly. Uh, they start doing these scryings. They start in, invoking these angels. And they start writing down this language, which doesn't really conform to linguistic rules, but it's not just gibberish either. It's not just a cipher. And that's why you get so much uh, interest in it, because it's not a slam dunk of, oh, it's just a cipher or it's something else. It's kind of weird. But then they put that into practice of how to do. They, they come back with rituals as well. And that's what they give to the people at the end of basically D's life. But it's not something that your average person could really um do easily or would even want to because it's not something that's going to get you rich it's going to be something that supposedly refines your soul to uh do the angels work here on earth mm. and in some ways it almost went dormant for a yes. long time after they long did. time yep um you know and at the same time this is happening you know i guess the other thing that's really important to think about is that john d is very lucky he lived in england and was doing what he did in england because a contemporary his Giordano bruno was living in italy at the time oh, and God. he was studying hermeticism he was burnt at the stake because that was yep. still happening there um, and he's another he, major figure bruno is. is really big yeah yeah and bruno is another guy he's very much a hermeticist but he's he's again in the same realm as as D where he's not translating, he's got translated books. Now he's reading and going, I think there's something to this. Mm -hmm. And he's actively practicing hermeticism and not just actively practicing it. He's trying to actively spread it. He's writing books about it. He's telling people what it is. And that did not fly with the church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can imagine now out of curiosity, how are these people like if they're actively practicing it? Okay. Wouldn't they need to get results to prove it to people? Like, uh, that's when they're not trying thinking. to. Well, uh, D actually did prove things to Elizabeth through his divinations. That was he was the court astrologer for her. And he came back with uh, information that she found useful. OK. Otherwise, she would have kicked him to the curb. Mm. That's fair. That's mm. fair. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, like this uh, Gianelli guy or where you mentioned. And yeah, Giordano. Yeah. If, uh, sorry, sorry. Um, even he, I mean, he must have actually 
I mean, you can spread all these ideas you want, but you're going to be the town crazy guy unless you can actually prove some of this, you would think. Well, and this comes into mystical experience in the sense of divine connection, but also magic and sorcery and a little bit of other things. So um, before we switch gears that way, is there anything else you want to say, Dave, before we move on from uh, the specifics of D? No, I think I just to expand on Bruno a little bit, because they said he's very important. And Bruno brought us a lot of things. And Bruno was very much about teaching systems. And he was very mm-hmm. much about teaching. And one of my favorite things that Bruno taught, and I once gave a Masonic lecture on this, and I can talk about it because it's not specifically Masonic, but um, mm. it's, is he d- did something called the art of memory. And one of his concepts, one of his ideas was not just the ritualistic ideas of, of creating a practice, but also the idea of creating some kind of building or structure that could help teach people things. And so that gets even more dangerous, right? Because now you're not just recruiting people, but now you're building a temple or something to actually, and they used to call it memory theaters later on. And I mean, memory theaters were starting to become in the 1600s, mm-hmm. but it's something that his concept was that it's not just about, I mean, once you start to cross that level, you're starting to recruit people. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the danger that Giordano Bruno brought forward was he wasn't just trying to teach, to learn something. He was trying to actively spread an idea. Yeah. And create and a, create a movement. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like at that point, it's a political thing, not a, not even a religious thing purely or a magical thing. It's a political thing. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when it comes to proving this stuff to, to anybody outside one, um, the mindset at the time, the ontology at the time was that this stuff was real and people did think these things happen and they had subjective experiences that um, they would justify as being this, whether it really happened or not. Uh, from our point of view, from an objective outside point of view, they mm-hmm. actually believe this stuff happened at the time. So it wasn't trying to convince them the same way that it would be trying to convince our modern audience today. Fair enough. And two, um, a lot of these things, you only believe in it when you've experienced it. So mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff, especially with the Western grimoires and even the, um, the Northern grimoires of the, the Svartskonspoker or the Galderboker in, in the North is they're not manuals of like, I'm going to start off and teach you how to do this. And we're going to go through all the, you know, here's our 10 step tutorial. They're more like your grandmother's recipes in her kitchen. Okay. She already expect, she already knows how to cook. What she's written down is I've got a pinch of this and a pinch of that. And I do this thing and I do this and I'm going to create this amazing meal for you. Mm-hmm. That's what the grimoires kind of are. So when people see the grimoires and they go, this doesn't do anything. I can go through these steps and it doesn't do anything. That doesn't bring in the, the training that supposedly happened with a lot of these things where you might meet a teacher and you spend a lot of time, uh, meditating and chanting and learning how to breathe and doing positions and getting yourself, you know, there. And once you go through that, then you start either going, you know, this isn't for me. I'm not this type of person. It's all bupkis. I don't believe any of it, whatever along those lines, or you go, wow, I've now experienced something that I didn't experience before. I'm going to keep going. There's a reason why I keep doing these stupid, boring exercises to, to use a ma- to use a music musical metaphor. Cause I find as a practitioner myself, I find music to be the closest analogy to explain to people, mm-hmm. um, both in experience and in the way that it's both a science and an art to where you have to learn theory, you have to learn techniques. But then at the same point, there's um, a personal aspect that you put into it to make it work for you. So you can pr- you have to practice scales. But if at a certain point you go, I've been doing all these scales and I can't sing a song or I can't play a song, 
I'm going to stop this because it's boring and there's something else I'd rather be doing. But at a certain point, you start going, oh, maybe maybe if I do this, wow, that's a really cool tune. Now I'm going to make a song. Now someone else maybe likes it. Of course, in the world of subjective spiritual experiences, whether they be religious, magical, or whatever, you can't quite expect have someone else see that necessarily unless you're doing work for them and they get brought into your phenomenological feedback. Hmm. Um, hmm. If uh, now you guys can kind of, kind of see if, if, if uh, this makes sense, I think to what you're starting to see uh, when you're getting into like the 1200s, the 1400s and that prior to that, any kind of mysticism was done Again, it was it was mostly it seems like it's mostly for a personal thing. It wasn't to an end. It was so I could have that epiphany, so I could have that touch of the divine. And the reason I think you can you can say like it's more subjective because again, it's it's more personal. Like if I've had that touch of the divine, I can describe it to you, but the words aren't gonna bring that idea. They're they're not gonna carry that idea across unless you you've had a similar experience. But when you get to these eras, you're starting to get that idea of um, uh, the mystic trickling down to, to to the people, or at least to the uh, we'll say to the politicians, because that idea of of you know it's it's we have to save their souls and that 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 came from D is sort of bringing the mystic down to the political world. And then I think what you're starting to see in this time is uh, like like had been said. I can make all kinds of claims that I have the ability. I can draw the stars down from the sky. I can poison your enemies. And I'm just the town weirdo unless those things start keying up. And they can do that subjectively to the crowd. The crowd can just start reading into it. And when that starts happening, that's when you get burned at the stake because now you're no longer the town weirdo. You're somebody who's a threat. And I think, yeah, at at this time it seems like you're kind of starting to see that dichotomy, and that's sort of what brings us kind of to where we are today with a lot of um, esoteric thinking versus the, uh, the the material world, I guess. I would agree as long as we limit it to Western learned magic. Okay. Yes. Because if we even do Western folk magic, and certainly outside of the historical milieu, milieu that we're talking about right now, Actually, the majority of magic was done for the community, and the community had to agree to it or they would have gotten another person to be their spiritual specialist. So when we talk about what academics talk talk as shamans or medicine men or whatever cultural term you want to put on it, they had to provide a service for the body politic. Um, and if they did not provide that service, whether it be really early on of, yes, I went into a vision and I know where the bison are. Let's go there and catch them. Uh, if they went there and there were no bison, they said, we're going to starve, buddy. We're going to get Bob down the street because he has better visions than you. None of this stuff would have lasted. And the same sort of thing that we have, this is a very interesting thing in the early witch trials in England. A lot of them weren't, and there's a, a great guy named Owen Davies who's written some great books on this. And in the last two or three centuries, or two or three decades, excuse me, um, we've seen more people going back to the original court records as opposed to secondary and tertiary sources about the, the witch trials. The earlier ones had less to do about religious uh, blasphemy and had more to do with fraud. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we had somebody saying, I asked for a charm that was going to make my, you know, cow have three (laughs) calves and it didn't work. And I want my money back from this guy. 
that was the sort of stuff that originally went on. Or I got cursed by so-and-so, and these are this is my evidence to show that I've suddenly got a ton of bad luck, and it's only after that person came to my house and told me they hated me and they they pointed a chicken foot at my face. <laughs> this is the stuff that's going on. So there's a lot more uh, consensus going on with the whole community saying, yes, this stuff works, or no, it doesn't. No. Yeah, I no. think... Sorry, just to kind of backtrack, I think the other thing that is important is that if you were studying this kind of thing in the 1200s, it would have been incredibly hard to get this information. Yeah. You would have had to really, really want to know this and had to have the means to be able to find it. And as time went on, it became more accessible as more people read. And so what you're seeing is it, it's growing, but it's growing not just because of because of its, it's growing because of availability of, of what's being published out there and what's being put out and more people being able to read and more scholars and more things. That's what's changing is that more people are getting their hands involved because they can. Yep. It, it is now going back though to Alothar's point. Could, could you say that what you're starting to see happen is there's, there's the, the, the learned magic and the more like the folk magic or the hedge magic, or even say like the, the the more say shamanistic kind of traditions, is coming out of that early wise individual idea, where the idea of mysticism and philosophy and science are actually still knotted up. Yeah, they're they're not they're not that separate. They're just slightly different places on the spectrum. Mm. Um, again, all those early people, mm. like uh, when you. Uh, Look at a lot of these supposedly shamanic, you know, specialists, and, and I, I qualify that term because there's a lot of controversy about using the term shamanic at this point in time. Um, almost all those words mean like the person who knows, or yeah. the person who has knowledge, or this or that or the other, the special thing. And when there's variations of that, it's also maybe someone who twists fate. So. Uh, like the, the the actual real etymology of the word witch has nothing to do with someone who's wise or or has wit. It has to do with it's more etymologically connected to wicker or wick mm -hmm. uh, in that that term witcha, which is actually where we get the term wicca, which is a mispronunciation. The original Old English is witchacraft, and that is witcha is etymologically connected to wicker, which means to twist, to turn. So it's like you've got these threads of momentum of fate is going a certain way and they can move it in another way. So you have the people who either know a lot or they're able to twist things or the mixture of the two. You have to know a lot before you can twist fate into its own way. Hmm. And you get that also in early Taoism uh, to bring in, you know, sort of like the, the, um, you know, Kung Fu action aspect of it where um, early Taoism, the actual, the whole history of Taoism outside of Lao Tzu is a very animistic, very deep spiritual practice that also has incredibly philosophical and herbalistic and medicinal uh, connections as well. Um, and in some many places in Asia is still very actively practiced in various oh, forms. It has never gone away. It is just as big as, you know, again, you know, some of the biggest, what we would call superstitions would be things like Taoism that has never gone away, Shintoism in Japan that has never gone away, um, mm -hmm. Hinduism, which, you know, is a world major religion, but, you know, Vedism is still inherently part of Hinduism and if it wasn't a, a large world religion, people would be looking at it with the same sort of, why are people still believing this? Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. I think historically what happens, you know, again, you, you, you pointed out that divide between the folk and the learned magic. Um, and that gap slowly changes over time um, as education comes in. Um, but I think what happens when you look back at Hermeticism and, and Kabbalah, definitely there were 
systems and there's a lot of evidence to show that there were likely groups that practiced these things together and supported each other back when they were initially beginning. And in the 1600s is kind of when the groups start to reassemble again mm. for the first yep. time in history. And that's where you get the Rosicrucians I talked about last time, because while the inspiration was let's get the Pope and then later on the chemical wedding of Christian Rosicruce changed that, you have common people who didn't find what they're looking for, who are all studying this on their own, who find a way to get together. Yep. And so you, the Rosicrucians are probably the first big group that steps in. And the, the, the big thing and the, the thing that's interesting and probably the reason why the Rosicrucians split into all sorts of different places when you hit the, 18, the 1900s really – is because you had so many different philosophical ideas and, and mystical ideas and esoteric ideas and all these things coming from varying levels in one place because it's the first group that existed that they could all get together into. Hmm. Yep. Um, and so then that starts taking place in a more aristocratic sense in the royal society and and later in Freemasonry. Um and starts to come in all these things. And it's in some of the reasons why a lot of the additional people and a lot of the record of this kind of stuff disappears. If you really look at the history of it disappears from kind of 1650 through to about 1800. Like there's nothing. It's like kind of this weird chasm, right? You agree with that Lothar? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. It's like, it's like all the scholarly work stopped for 150 years. Mm -hmm. And the fact is it wasn't that it was stopped. It was just – it was then pulled in proprietary into various groups. And, and the groups world was kind anything. of going through a whole lot of war for it at that time. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And so hmm. really the 1800s where everything comes back again. And yep. so that's kind of where we went to uh, – Francis Barrett I think is the first person, right? He writes something, and then you start going into Barrett, Alphaz Levi, you get Helena Provtrovo-Bovatsky, you get all these different voices in the 1800s that bring themselves forward, and they're all fighting to create systems. And this is a whole other side thing, and um, just to give you guys a heads up, I got probably about 15 minutes, and then I turn into a mystical pumpkin. But um, uh, we could either continue to another point, or however, however your audience wants us to go, but the um, one thing that... Uh, we shouldn't underestimate is also uh, one there. You got a lot of dilettantes. Now you got people with money and a lot of free time and they're going to look into interesting things in the 1800s. And we got all that sort of stuff. And we also have people trying to reconcile Darwin. Hmm. And that has some very interesting sidebars that would be a whole nother podcast on its own, but it leads to mm. certain aspects of uh, theosophy with the root races that we all quote unquote evolved from that Blavatsky was part of reactions to that, which we get a little bit with the golden dawn. And that also comes into Robert E. Howard and uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien with the uh, different races of the, the Picts and things like that, which uh, Tolkien saw as the Hobbits and Howard saw as his Picts. So it's like it has other branching that goes out from there as well. Wow. Okay. But if you've got to go soon, Luthar, then we should probably talk about. I think you wanted to talk about um, the uh, how you'd had some personal mystic experiences because we talked at the beginning about how Dave said that he you know wasn't looking for mystical experiences and so that's why he didn't find any. But you have come from the other direction where you, I believe you've had some experiences that have made you more believe in these things. Yeah, it's, um, 
interesting. I think probably like the, the, the only place that Dave and I really uh, uh, diverge on this is that I've always been the type of person in regards to this study to like, I want to know what this is about. I'm going to mm-hmm. go in there and see what this happens because I can read stuff till the day's done, um, but I'm not going to know unless I do it. And starting in the, t- well, I actually had some experiences when I was really young, but then also later on, I sort of consciously got into it in my mid twenties, trying to get into it, but really not until I was 30. And that's when I really sort of dove really deep into it. And, um, yeah, I went to other countries. Uh, my wife is an anthropologist. We did some pilgrimages and worked with some, uh, groups in various mm-hmm. places. You start, and this is where it gets really hard is that, um, practitioners in general, the way that we become converts, if we're not just drinking the Kool-Aid and of course there's people that do that. I was told that I want to believe it. I want to live in a magical world. Don't tell me otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, but for people that might be a little bit more analytical that really want to prove to themselves that this is real and it's not delusion in their own heads is you start getting coincidences. So if I do a, if I do a working to get a job, it's not Mm -hmm. like a demon is going to show up on my front door and go, here's your job, show up here tomorrow and they're going to hire you. You start thinking, okay, what am I doing differently? Um, I'm having a hard time finding a job. I got to do something different. I don't know what that is, but I'm open myself up to it. I do this ritual and then maybe I get a invitation by a friend I haven't heard from for a long time. And I go out to a party and a person at the party is hiring for a job that I is perfect for me. And then it happens. Coincidence, mm. nothing but right. coincidence. And then you start getting a whole lot of coincidences. They happen a lot when you do these workings and then you get coincidences, especially when you start building into them. I want something to happen within the next three, six, nine weeks. And if it doesn't, it didn't work. But if it happens within that time frame, maybe it did. After the years pile up and you start getting positive, what we call phenomenological feedback, you mm-hmm. send a message out into the universe or to your gods or however you want to word that, and something comes back to you in response, then you start going, maybe there's something here. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's something transpersonal. And it's never completely separate from the psychological. Uh, one that, you know, we're, we're, I don't think there's any real practitioner that believes anything like Harry Potter or pop culture stuff. Anybody Mm -hmm. who believes they're going to learn how to shoot a fireball out of their fingers is probably a poser or just someone who's being conned by somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, the one sort of specific I'll give, because I'm just actually very pleased with this one, is something I've been doing for the last two months. I just turned 50 this year and I got my, uh, you know, cholesterol levels back and it's nothing horrible, but it's like, I better change the way that I live or else in a few years I'll have to be on medication and do all the Mm -hmm. horrible, stupid things. Right, yeah. I'm not good with controlling my appetite. So I did a working and I wanted to become friends with hunger so that I wouldn't reject that feeling. So I designed it around that. I'm almost treating it like an animistic spirit that I can have a relationship with and learn from. And within two months, I've lost 16 pounds and it's been effortless. Hmm. It's not because I magicked the fat away. It's because I used a structure to mess with my own mind to approach the situation differently. Okay. I so could you just say, I, rewired I your thinking. Rewired my thinking, and that's what the ritual did, is it bypassed my conscious mind, you know, and, also, and then basically allowed me to reprogram that aspect of myself by doing these stages. And that's the psychological part where it's not just psychological, it's actually a really good methodology because if we could just say, oh, I just need to change my mind, everybody's New Year's resolutions would work, we would mm-hmm. all be doing the things that we want to do and not like, oh God, I watched, you know, I binge watched instead of doing that other thing I really should have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are ways that it can work. And then where it gets transpersonal is maybe there's also, again, those coincidences and synchronicities of 
that also aids you in a certain process. Hmm. Okay. Now, what exactly do you mean by a working? Can you be more specific about yes, that? Yes, that is, that is a less hyperbolic way of saying a spell. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or a ritual, because those have loaded words. Ritual usually has a religious term. Spell has a hocus-pocus Harry Potter sort of feel. Uh, you create something within whatever structure you're working within, whatever your tradition is of this is what I have to do to open, this is what I have to do to close, this is how I get into the right mental state. That's another one is um, a lot of these things when we were talking about grimoires not teaching you stuff. One of the things that all of these different traditions teach you how to do is how to get into the right mental state or state of consciousness that allows certain things to happen when you're in that ritual space that is different than just memorizing lines and doing it as if you're on stage performing a part. Hmm. Okay. It would be similar to uh, the closest thing I can for ju- without going into like a whole nother thing of, cause there's all sorts of different mental states, but you work really hard as a drummer. And then at some point you get to the point to where all four of your limbs are doing something on its own and holding its own rhythm down. Right. Mm-hmm takes a long time to get there and when you do it's you can't it's hard to explain what that mental state is like to someone because it's trying to explain a color that they haven't seen right yeah okay i I do understand what you're talking about yes um you're in the oh in Taoism, they would call it you're in the Tao at that point you have the Tao of drumming that, that is that is that is one mental state it's not the only mental state there's right. uh, there's also one of the reasons why i um gravitated more towards shamanism and things like that was because I I work better with what some people call excitory states as opposed to inhibitory states. Mm. All of the Western stuff that we've been talking about of hermeticism is for the most part inhibitory. You get quiet, you meditate, you go within, you focus your will to a laser point. That's Mm. its own thing. I didn't do so well with that. I did better with movement and chant and getting myself roused up physically until I could, you know, go beyond that. Um, and you know, similar to like martial artists that, that get into a, a martial state or almost like a, a controlled berserk state. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, we talked about all this historical stuff and one of the things you and I talked about was kind of how all that came together into practice mm-hmm. in the modern now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, we have some, uh, in, in the postmodern world, in the 70s in Britain, you had, because again, Britain is the the true recipients of the legacy of the Golden Dawn and Hermeticism and all that stuff. I mean, Germany as well and France to a certain degree, but you know, it's England. England's, you know, cool. They, they, they ruled the world for all hail Britannia. Um, a lot of the magicians in the 70s were looking at the stuff from the Golden Dawn and going, there's something here, but all of this fluff of all this other crap, let's just strip it away, deconstruct it to its core techniques. Let's take all of the dogma away. Let's take all of the mythology away. Let's just get to what people are trying to do and let's actually try and get results. So you got people like um, Phil, uh, well, Peter Carroll and uh, Ramsey Dukes were some of the two first people. Uh, one of the guys I mentioned uh, uh, to you, Dave, uh, Alec Howe, who wrote uh, The Magicians of the Golden Dawn. Did you ever Absolutely. read that? Yes. Yeah. He he was actually a practitioner. He was part of, he was one of these early chaos magicians. He just doesn't publicize it much, but that's one of the, one of the ways that he was coming at from this it's stuff. It's a fantastic book too. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely great. Um, anybody who's interested in the golden dawn should pick up the magicians of the golden dawn. I think it's out of print, but track it down. And I would say that's the only one you should read. Yes. All the others. <laughs> yes. Regardies is just fluffy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
so they broke it down and they started doing things of like, they weren't even trying to do something major. It'd be like, I'm going to do a really intense working tonight. And within the next 24 hours, I want to see a brunette woman in a red fancy dress walking a dog. And then see if that would manifest. Okay. Um, what they started realizing, what, what chaos magic is all about, which is what this all turned into, is you don't need to adhere to any one system. You just need to adopt a system, put your belief in it, because it's that emotional fuel that makes this stuff happen. And you could, and some of their exercises was things like, this week I'm going to be doing uh, Egyptian magic based on the, uh, the magical Greek papyri. Next uh, week, I'm going to do Hermeticism. The week after that, I'm going to do um, Satanism. The week after that, I'm going to do something from South America. And I'm going to try and get results with each of those to prove that it's not the belief system. It's something else that's going on. And you get this with Grant Morrison in um, you know, The Invisibles comic book for you know, people probably are familiar with that who are listening to this. Uh, he was approaching it too. And he would do things with pop culture icons of like superheroes and pop dead pop stars and stuff like that and have positive experiences as well. Whether people are actually, you know, getting those experiences, uh, true or whether they're deluding themselves, it does lead to an interesting thing that I think brings us back around to Rosicrucianism and the golden dawn, which is as we find out that more and more of this stuff is historically fraudulent, people doctored, uh, you know, documentation, they forged things, they completely made stuff up for political reasons of, we don't like those theosophists, so let's make up our own thing and, and nah, nah, nah on them. People are still getting results. A similar sort of thing happened with the Tarot, where people think they get really good divinations, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. I've had people that are eerily accurate with their readings, and some people where it's like, yeah, that's pretty much universal to anybody in any situation, you're not doing a damn thing. But the cards are all out of order, except for Crowley. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so they're not even the right order. They're coming from a place that had forged documents because that's the Golden Dawn. They're based on Rosicrucian stuff that's forged. All this stuff is hoax, hoax, hoax back to the beginning. People are still getting positive, true experiences despite the lack of historical accuracy. How is that happening? And that maybe leads to, is this that different from when we see things or when we talk about things like remote viewing or psychic abilities to where you're still using a ritual structure to get into a mental state to do something? It's just a secular modern one, not an ancient one. Hmm. Okay. So what you're basically saying, and I'm going to, I'm going to put a comparison here. that's probably going to make you wince, but basically <laughs> it's, it's Dumbo. It's crow feather magic where they give you in the movie Dumbo, they give Dumbo can fly, but they he can't, but he doesn't believe it until they give him the crow feather, which he thinks is magic, and suddenly he can fly. And so, basically, what you're saying yes. is, is that all of this is basically people coming up with weird fake systems to produce results, which they could all produce all along, except they need some belief system to help get them over that hump, basically. <laughs> I, I would use the metaphor of scaffolding. Okay. We are not there yet. We are not at a point as human beings, which we may never be, but let's just look you know, positively in a science fiction sort of world realm to where maybe we'll get to the point someday to where we could have you know, uh, psychic abilities that people can access at will. And maybe there have been people like that, the really special people, who knows? I've never met one myself, but hey. Um, this is scaffolding to get us to that point, if it's real, if it happens. Jake, Jacob's um, Ladder. Jacob's mm -hmm. Ladder. Yes, another wow. one. Perfect. Right back Tower, to it. Tower of Babel. All these metaphors of going up higher and higher, you know, have a lot of different meanings, a lot of different ways to impart meaning from these stories. And one of which is these are ways for us to become more than we are. 
and to try and see the limitations in that and others. And that's the other thing is serious magicians, serious practitioners. We don't really think we're all that special because this is really damn hard and it doesn't work all the time. And we're sort of compelled to do it um, in the same way that an artist is. Why does a writer write or a painter paint? Because sometimes, unless they're just getting paid at it, it's because they're kind of compelled to. And I think most magicians are the same way. We couldn't really answer why we do it except that, well, we just kind of got to. And you know what's fascinating with the whole conversation is because Jacob's Ladder is actually what I started with when we started this conversation. Yes. And, yeah, you know, we've gone 2,000 years through history to, and through every exercise and all these different things and all these people get to a very basic point that – and it, it kind of goes back to my simplicity idea in a sense is that sometimes we can overcomplicate things so much and we forget that sometimes something is just very simple. Yes. And, is, and, yep. and, and, and we don't need to make it so complicated. Mm-hmm. It's just a very simple practice. You need the scaffolding to get higher and we yep. need some help to get there. Yep. And it's, you know, and it's like, you know, it's great to have those mystical experiences because they give you more meaning in the world. But I think this is, uh, a lot of people in this realm also experience the meaning behind that Zen Cohen of, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I still got to pay my taxes, no matter how many workings I do that work, no matter how many amazing insights that seem incredible to me, I still got to go to work in the morning and I might piss off my wife and she's, you know, mad at me for a while. And, um, I do something blunderous at work and I'm worried about losing my job. I mean, all this stuff still exists and Mm -hmm. you don't suddenly get somewhere. And I think that's where the con people come in. They promise a freedom from responsibility and a freedom from the hardship of living a physical life. And that's just not going to happen. You know, I think though you, you guys have kind of bumped up uh, against what I've always considered to be the, the quandary of, of, of the epiphany. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Because another kind of sideways way of looking at all of this, because I'm, I'm going to, put out the idea i'm not going to get into the the details but i played the game a long time ago where i basically said to the universe okay if you're out there and you're aware make this happen and it did like word for word yep and i don't talk about it because i realized consciously it could have all been entirely a coincidence but it was so specific that to me it doesn't feel like a coincidence and then that becomes this this ultimate quandary that even though you get your answer, ultimately it's not an answer because the thing is, as human beings, we don't really know what reality is. We don't know what self is. We we have nope. kind of a vague awareness, but it's yeah, we, we can't mm-hmm. explain it. But the thing is, because this this weird thing happens, it happened very specifically. And the idea of, of, of mystics and, and people into the esoteric arts and people who are into like meditation and seeking that communion with something beyond them, it's always that question because it comes up, is it quote unquote real? Is it objectively real? And then because you got to kind of keep in mind, I think, because we carry the universe around with us. Like we all have our own separate world because that's how human consciousness works there's there's a lot of interpretation there's a lot of projection does it really make that big of a difference if it's real to us as as long as we're not trying to to sell it to others because that's where again the the quandary yep. comes in exactly you, you can't you can't feel my epiphany 
Yep, exactly. Mm. And and it, it, when it comes down to the selling stuff, it's like the, the organization I'm a part of, we're all volunteers. The only money we come in is to just keep the organization going, and we all put at least 20 hours a week in from the, the highest levels to keep it running just because we want people to be able to um, if they're interested in this and this is what they're called to, we want to make it available to them, but no one's getting money off it. And that's a big difference. That that type of organization, or whether it be a small group or a larger organization or whatever, is very different than the ones to where it's like, yes, and please give me half of your uh, income and don't talk to your you know family anymore. And we are mm-hmm. you know defined as a cult. So absolutely, I completely agree with you, Don. Hmm. But on the flip side, though, how does that make just to just as a play devil's advocate here for a moment, Don, how does that make um, a mis- a quote unquote mystical experience any different than the experience someone might have on an hallucinogenic drug, for example? You have it; it's theoretically real to you, but it's not objectively real. It doesn't have any real effect on the world at all. I have not an answer the world for that. As we know it. Oh, okay, go. Is it still useful to you after you come down off your high? Is it something that you can put into practice afterwards? And I've had a little bit of entheogenic uh, background that I will neither confirm nor deny for certain legal reasons. <laughs> um, of course. But if you – and this is, again, where it's like, are you uh, – you know, one of the main things of, you know, set and setting. That's everything, you know, Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, all those people. Set and setting, that's really important. If you approach these things as just a recreation, you're going to get a recreation. Mm-hmm. If you approach it ritually – Uh, you can actually learn how to get into certain mental states when you're straight that you could get into only because that door was opened when you were under the influence of the entheogen. And, you know, again, going back to last episode, you talked about that book, A Diary of a Drug Drug Fiend by Alexander. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that is exactly what that book is about. It's about using the drug as an avenue Mm. to get the experience. Yep. Mm. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. And And I do know that many have used you know, uh, drugs to get to achieve different mental states. That's that's been a tr- very traditional part of things. Yeah. And in Europe, this is the other thing. And and then I really kind of have to go, but this might set up another uh, discussion at some point. Is mm-hmm. in Europe, the drug of choice were various types of brewed beverages, whether it be mead mm-hmm. in the north or ale or nectars or wines, and. When you add certain herbs to it, they become a helper, and it's interesting because they don't blow you out of your brain the way that the New World entheogens do. Mm-hmm. And if you control them, it's like uh, certain ones just might heighten a certain emotional sense. Um, I made or the I, I actually did a a because I I do my own brews. Um, we make our own mead and ales and stuff. We found a recipe for henbane ale, which was the original pilsner. The word pilsner actually references the plant henbane. And this was before the German purity laws uh, changed the way they made it. Originally, it was a very simple top-down ale, top-down pitch ale. Um, Henbane is a psychotropic drug if you drink enough of it. Everybody has a slightly different experience with it. For my wife, it made her very euphoric. For me, it made me very aggressive. It just put me in a state to where I could go to war with someone. So if I was going to use that, um, let's say I wanted to prepare for a really confrontational meeting at work and I wanted to be very strong, I could do this and get myself into a state and remember that state and put it into practice when I'm there. Or let's say I want to do something a little bit more truly sorcerous and curse somebody. I might do that to, as a preparatory stage before I do the, before I enact the ritual. It's not going to blow me out of my mind, but it is going to aid me in nudging me into the right emotional state to do what I need to do. Hmm. Okay. There, there's an even, uh, even, I guess, more common, I guess it'd be quote unquote, um, uh, example of that. Mm-hmm. 
and that's there's there's a great ritual that people will use like um like certain certain kind of potent liquids to heighten the communal experience and to heighten the um the the elevated consciousness and and in emotional levels that make the 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 ritual popular and that's the super bowl (laughs) there you go we we should not devalue the depth that secular rituals could go if people actualized their their role within them at the time Mm. Mm -hmm. well i might even argue that that they're they're doing that it's just they don't realize they're doing that because they'd never put it in those terms but yeah watch watch like hardcore sports fans that's yeah Oh hell yeah! Yep, and Those you want to talk about ecstatic. ecstatic? Yes, they are. Yep. They are getting a complete <laughs> ecstatic state that would make a berserker afraid for a second. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, or speaking of berserkers, try being in a heavy metal uh, concert. Yep. <laughs> especially in the especially in the pit before the stage or whatever. Um, <laughs> that's quite the experience too. Yep. And, uh, and you know, again, another for another discussion. But uh, you know, there's all the times that Fleetwood Mac would, uh, you know, honestly try and create like a magical, mystical experience with their audience by trying to channel the energy of the the emotional energy of the audience and stuff. So yeah, that stuff's always been around. There's even a book. Uh, it's out of print called The Death and Resurrection Show that linked shamanic stuff to uh, rock stars like uh, Jim Morrison. Mm. Well, Morrison would have loved that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really got to okay. go, guys. But this has been amazingly fun, and um, thank you so much for having me on and for you know no, letting, a, for coming letting on, Lothar. It's been a pleasure. Friend, come over. You know, it has definitely <laughs> been a pleasure, and hopefully, we'll talk to you again sometime in the future. That'd be great. <laughs> okay, take care, man. Bye. Alrighty, and I'll see you guys on the interwebs. Yep. Yep. Thanks, Lothar. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yes. Nice to meet you too. We should probably actually finish the show. So is there anything more we want to actually talk about just the three of us or do we want to just bring the show to a close? We can. I mean, I guess really it's just bringing back the context to the history of um, bringing it forward full circle to what we talked about last episode. We talked about the Rosicrucians and really what what happened in, in the 2000, you know, 1900s and the 2000s, but particularly 1900s mm-hmm. was – just a mass amount of information. And I mean, Lothar's right with what he said. You know, there's so many things that just came up and everybody just crap, kept grabbing so much. And the more people that had access to the information, it's almost an exponential growth of things. And then it gets too much. And what ended up mm-hmm. happening, you know, especially to the Rosicrucians as a great example, was they fractured into six, seven, eight different groups. I've actually talked to some of the people. And, I mean, there's some guys that were left with, like, a group of eight people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just fractured at all these levels and fought with edge and argued, and I'm more important. I know what I'm doing, and you're not. It's, it's, there's a lot of stuff that happened that is very that's, – that's really fascinating. And I think it speaks to everybody's own individual needs in, mm. in these situations. Mm. And, and I, I'm glad, like Lothar said, you know, in the end, what you're left with is you're not sure what you can believe anymore. Right. Because you don't right. know what's true because so much has been edited and so much has been changed that the one thing that you can speak about mystical history, and we, we talked about, you know, the fakery of things and stuff like that, you know, in, it, it's possible had it not been front nod commodity, if, you, if we go back to that, Mm-hmm. we don't know what's real and what's not real. Mm-hmm. There's no way to know who made what up right? because so much has been heavily edited. And what Nag Hammadi gave was this was almost a reminder that this stuff was, there was a, there's a pure state of these things. And I think it took a long time for that stuff to be disseminate, disseminated. Then it took a longer time for it to be properly translated because that's, there's delays in those kind of things. Right. And so once it finally got properly translated and figured out and put together and combined with what they had, 
it gives you a bigger picture. And I think sometimes people went, hey, wait a minute, what happened here? And I, and I do mm. hope that happens sometimes when it comes to these groups um, that, like Lothar said, you know, if you're in it for the right reasons, then you don't worry about, you're not trying to rule the world. You're not trying to change things. You're not trying to have giant magic fights like Mathers and, you know, and, you know, and, uh, and, and Alan Bennett, like we talked about, right. <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Yes. I think you're not, you're not trying to have these things. I want you think what you're just trying to do is make the world a better place for yourself and the people around you mm. and whatever okay. method that takes, hmm. I think, I think that's really what it is. I don't, I think, you know, for people like me, and it's, it's funny that I never, really followed mysticism because, you know, one of the things I've always struggled with is I don't feel at home in a giant church. Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable in that environment because I don't have a shared experience with those people. So, I mean, at this point in time, I go into a church, I feel like I'm a big faker. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I shouldn't be there. Even though I was raised Roman Catholic, we went to a Catholic high school, you know, grade school, all this kind of stuff. But I feel like I, um, I feel like I don't belong in that environment. I, I'd be curious if I did feel more comfortable with a smaller group of people. Because I can tell you, being a Mason, I feel comfortable in that environment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I have to believe that the Masonic environment, because the Masonical environment is incredibly ritualistic. It's a memory theater unto itself because every lodge you go into is the exact same situation, the exact same setup. Everything, all the imagery, everything is placed in the same place. There's a lot of these things that, that stayed alive and stayed alive but transformed into other things to help people along their ways. And I, and um, I think that's – sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying, what's a memory theater? That term has come up several oh, times during this has, episode. It has. So but but the, I don't know what that is. So I'll, I'll give you a, a condensed version of my Masonic lecture that I gave years ago because I did a lot of research into this. So, mm -hmm. so Cicero was, a, was kind of one of the most famous orators that existed in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. And Cicero used to use a, tact, a technique. Um, where he would have a building he would walk through to memorize his speeches. And so he would walk through this building. He had certain places he would go into, and he would walk through. And while he walked through this building, he would memorize his speech. He would, There's a sword. I'm going to talk about the war. There's this thing. I'm going to talk about this. And he could have these speeches that would last for hours because he had the ability to, in his head, to walk the path that he walked in this building as he was giving the speech and recall all these images that he saw throughout his in his memory that would prompt him to memorize his speech mm -hmm. so what has started happening in especially with bruno giordano bruno was this idea that you could create some kind of edifice some kind of building that would give you that experience in a mystical setting that would teach you mystical ideas that mm -hmm. would teach you um various things and so and you would place objects and that would teach you um what you were supposed to learn. So instead of saying, I'm going to learn a speech and I can change it in the imagery um, different times, I have a building and I'm going to change the imagery in my head. What if you had a building that had set imagery in it? And that mm -hmm. set imagery had a very specific lesson to it. Um, the Masonic Lodge, as the best example I can give, is, is everything in it, no matter what lodge you go to from... Canada to England to France to um, New Zealand. It doesn't matter where you go. If you walk into a Masonic lodge, everything you see in that lodge is going to be placed in the exact same place. Huh. Okay. And there's a purpose for that. And the purpose for that is it's a shared experience and it's an automatic recollection to the lessons of each of those things. Because throughout the Masonic ritual, you're taught what each of these things are. Mm -hmm. You're taught what this thing represents. 
what this image, what each image represents and what it means and what it should mean to you. There's a modern context to it because there's a moral context to it. Mm-hmm. And so you can use that memory theater idea for just about anything you want. And so in the ancient world, or not in the ancient world, but in the Renaissance world or the Elizabethan world more so, you would use the memory theater to bring these new practitioners on board and teach them something. It's also possible that because of this memory theater, one of the things that you don't need to read in order to learn it. Right, yeah. So you don't have to have a book to read. You can bring people in who, don't, who aren't literate and can be taught an oral history. Wow. And so that's yeah. what the memory theater was all about, was about teaching a history to people and teaching lessons to people. And the idea was that you could change it around and you could maneuver it, but it was a way to disseminate mystical information without having to write it down. Because you got to remember, writing it down is dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that period. And so that's where the concept came from is, you know, you have these, what does this mean? Oh, that's Jesus. That's this. You could say whatever you wanted to, right? Right, um, right. But that was the concept behind the memory theater. And so when I, when I was doing the research in the memory theater, I was, I was fascinated by all these things. And I always wanted to bring it into my lectures. And so I, had, I gave this lecture oh, a number of years ago in London uh, about the memory theater and how really Masonic lodges are memory theaters. And so that's kind of one of, the, one of the ideas. It is. And it, I think it's all about, it's all, you know, one of the lessons you see in all this is it's all about how you disseminate information. Mm. Now, here's an odd question. So if it's a memory theater, do those yeah. memory theaters have multiple layers? Like, for example, if you go through the first time, you might learn, okay, these things represent this. But then when you reach the next level, you're told, well, actually, it doesn't just represent that. It also represents this, this, and this. Yes, and- absolutely. It could. Um, they, you know, I can use the Masonic history, you know, again, I'm not giving anything away, but I can give the Masonic context and say that absolutely that is, there's multiple levels to what you're seeing. Right. And so you see one thing and then you see it differently the next time. And then you see it differently next time. And, and Freemasonry understand that in England, the only thing that's recognized is the first three, three degrees of Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada has 32 in the States up to the Shriners has like 32 or 33 degrees. Right. right. Um, all the rest in England isn't officially recognized. So it's all later additions to tell better stories. Okay. Because that's what it's all about. Right. It's about the immersive Im- story, uh, immersive nature of, uh, of the group you're in. And well, so hold on a second, professor, which one's quick, <laughs> quick question. Um, so does that mean that each time, each degree you go up, you learn new meanings for the memory theater, the new stories? Um, well, in the Masonic context, they create new memory theaters. <laughs> so there's, mm. there's several different types of lodges. Okay. Um, I'm only a member of the first, the first, the basic blue lodge, they call it. Um, right. But there's, there's definitely, and, and the Rosicrucians follow a similar pattern. A lot of these groups, that are neo-mystical and are, are, you know, pseudo-mystical, maybe there's a better word I'm looking at, pseudo-mystical, because they're not, Mm -hmm. Masonic Masonry isn't really a mystical group per se anymore. Right. Um, Neither really are the Rosicrucians and a lot of these other groups. Um, So that there's multiple levels and multiple different things you can go into. So the Masonic Lodge, for example, has uh, four different levels if you count the shrine. Mm-hmm. That are physical different buildings and different lodges that you're a part of with different rooms and different imagery and different things that are associated with it. Huh. So okay. it's a whole set level of of understanding and each level presents different life lessons and different stories and different um, – and again, it's all under the same context about 
um, being a better person and a better citizen right. of the world and a better human, essentially, and a better man in the context right. of men. Um, and of course, then you've got the women's section with the Eastern Star, and there's all those rituals as well. But again, each of the ones, if you go into um, into uh, <clears throat> consistory is one of the levels. If you go into that, you're going to go into consistory in London or Windsor, Toronto, Amsterdam. It's going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the consistent realities is that, you know, and you don't get that same thing in lots of other places. You know, you can go into a Catholic church and aside from a few different images, it's not the same thing. Yes, you're right. going to have the stations of the cross and you're going to have these different things that are there, but everything else is going to be a bit different. It's going to be positioned differently. It's going to be in the same thing. Imagine if every single Catholic church you walked into had the exact same imagery in every single place you went to. Mm-hmm. That's what a Masonic Lodge is like. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm still fascinated by the memory no, it's theater okay. idea. Feel free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so so other, I have another question. Is there, do memory theaters have like – how can I put this? A keystone? Like, is there something that indicates that the room you just walked into is a memory theater? Is there some kind of like standard or is this something that's not standardized? Yeah, I don't think it's standardized that way. I think that, you know, I, I think when you think of memory theater, you think they're building these giant buildings, right? And it's not, I mean, they use theater as a, as a, uh, as a term, but right. oh, it, it right. might just be a room that they rented out or kind of thing that they set up, right? No, well, that's why I'm assuming that there are certain yeah. objects around the room and there's actually a pattern to them in some way if you know how – if you know what to look for. Yeah, so I guess it all depends on how you were taught it, right? Because, I mean, right. someone's going to set it up and then they're going to teach you how to uh, interpret that. Right, okay. And, and I think that's the – it's direct lessons. It's direct – this is what this is. This is what this means. This is what you should learn from this thing. Right, but is there a particular? But is there a particular order? Like, is there a spot that it's like, okay, you start here, and you, or is that just something you're taught? So it could be both. It definitely could be both. Um, I would say when you get into the Masonic ritual, for example, uh, you don't have that, to give away secrets. No, no, no I'm, not giving, away, I'm not giving away. I'm not giving away secrets at all. There is, with variances, a very clear cadence of order to everything. Okay. And again, the Masonic Lodge is built out of all these things. Right, it's the yeah. most present. It's probably the most. You know, I joined Freemasonry partially because I mean, my family had been in it for decades, generations, mm-hmm. and I was curious and I was interested and I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't expect anything from it, and to be honest, you know, one of the things that I I didn't I, I what I gained from the Masonic Lodge is friendship. Mm-hmm. And 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 brotherhood and that kind of thing and that's I'm not saying that because I'm towing the party lines that's just the absolute truth I've gained nothing else from Freemasonry there's no benefit to being a Freemason mm. from my perspective other than becoming a better person and having good friends right um, yeah kind of thing and so um, I, I and I don't think that was always the case in being a Freemason it was mm-hmm. the principle behind it but it was always the case but I think one of the things that's endured about it that's fascinating is that it really in some ways has been the air and the constant reminder of all the things that existed and all these things confabulating together, if you will, and crashing together. Um, it's taking the core of Elizabethan thought really and not letting it die mm-hmm. mm. and, and keeping it in a very pure form um, and, and making, and I think the message behind it is the reason why it stays along because while the offshoot groups took off and and we're allowed to do things and within masonry you're allowed to there's lots of things we're allowed to do and i talk specifically of english freemasonry because of course that's where the society rosia cruciana and all these kind of things came around and the golden dawn started from it 
I think what you see is um, the fact that those were allowed to exist because the core values in the Blue Lodge and the main core stayed the same always. Mm -hmm. So you're allowed to pivot out of it pretty easily and find your own pathway, but you come to a core central value and a core mm. central a, a core central ritual that binds everything together. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's the best way I can put it. And I think it's something that's law a lot of groups have lost along the way, and I think it's why Freemasonry's existed for so long is cuz it's never lost its why. Mm. It's never lost the reason it exists. And I think, you know, when you look at the Rosicrucians, if you, different Rosicrucian groups have a different reason why they exist. Right. And I don't think the Freemasons have ever lost that. Hmm. That's just a whole other side point. But it's right, and, yeah. I, and I talk about not as a member, but more as a scholar, because I, I love the history of Freemasonry as well. Um, but they do. It does enter into the conversation. Right. Right. Huh. Yeah. That's so, uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I think it's 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 a um, it's a great window into, and even without, I mean, you could research, there's so many books written about Freemasonry, most of them aren't true. Um, mm. <laughs> but uh, there is a lot of stuff written in there. If you really want to go look, you can go find up on it and see all the things you want to see and all the rituals printed, if you can understand all the letters in there and stuff like that. It's, it's accessible to people if they really want to find out. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you know, Masons really don't, and I, I think one of the things that, you know, in some ways Masonry did a disservice to, it, to itself by making themselves so secretive for so long that, you know, they do suffer a membership issue now. Um, and I think there's been a lot of changes in trying to change that along a little bit because mm -hmm. how do you get people involved when you won't talk about things? You know, I'd tell yeah. you about Freemasonry, but I won't talk about it. This isn't a recruitment for Freemasonry, by the way. <laughs> right. Not at all. Right. I'm not trying that at all. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But um, I, I think there's definitely um, – that's the way I've looked at things always um, in some ways coming back to it. Maybe I started from a Masonic standpoint a long time ago because I really wanted to know what this group was all about. You know, I joined mm -hmm. it and I'm like, okay, so I, I finished the degrees and I went, okay, I still don't know what this is all about. <laughs> I, I, I get, I get this part of it, but why does the rest exist? And where did this come from? And so I just threw myself into the history of it again. What is, you know, there's a theme there, isn't there? Right. Yeah. I was going to go research something. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting um, cross section of. I mean, there's very few groups that have existed for uh, untainted for as long as Freemasonry has mm -hmm. um, that haven't changed and have have roughly stayed. You know, ritual. Yes, the rich. And what's interesting is ritual has always been adapted. It's been altered to some degree to meet modern language terms and all those kind of things. But what it's about has never changed. Right. Hmm. There's yeah. that consistent theme and consistent idea. Okay. I think so. I think so. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's, a, it's allowed others to kind of to go out there and, and, um, and thing. And I think what's, what it roots out a lot of times is the people who get into it for the wrong reasons. Because mm -hmm. very quickly they find out they're not, they don't find what they're looking for. And they, you know, it's not some crazy mystic group and they go, oh, well, I don't, uh, I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> well, well, exactly. It doesn't teach them how to cast fireballs, right? So therefore they're no, out. No, <laughs> like Lothar said, if you're, uh, if, you know, maybe that's the lesson of the day. If you think that you're going to be casting fireballs and, um, you know, uh, repair Oculus and all these kind of things, and that's where you're looking for your mystic experience, it, 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 none of that exists. <laughs> 
or does it? <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true Mason. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, yeah, so, yeah, there's a whole other topic unto itself. But... It is, and probably we should bring the show to a close then on sure. that note. Um, so thanks, Dave, for coming on again and helping to uh, demystify the world of mysticism just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, it was uh, a again, pleasure, guys. And again, thank you, Lothar, who's going to be listening to this right now, for coming on as well. Appreciate your knowledge, and hopefully we will again talk to you in the future again sometime as well. Um, Audience, if you wish to uh, share your thoughts or own mystical experiences with us, please uh, drop by ObeyTheDNA.com and uh, leave comments uh, on the show. And, of course, the show notes with as much as I can possibly come up with from all the stuff that they (laughs) talked about will be listed um, alongside the show. So thank you very much for listening. And um, Don, any final thoughts on your on your end? I'm just wondering, does this mean like those Atlantean love crystals I bought aren't going to work? No, man, they're, they work. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!